Let us pray. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word, and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The scripture reading is from the Old Testament, the first reading, uh, the book of Psalm 65, chapter 65, verses 1 through 13. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who answer prayer, to you all flesh shall come. When deeds of inequity overwhelm us, you forgive our transgressions. Happy are those whom you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with deliverance. O God of our salvation, you are the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. By your strength, you establish the mountains. You are girded with might. You silence the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Those who live at earth's farthest bounds are awed by your signs. You make the gateways of the morning and the evening shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide the people with grain, for you so have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with richness. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It is a joy for me to be here with you to share in worship this morning. I'm particularly delighted to be able to be here on the pulpit with uh, two of my favorite people. Um, They have both been wonderful resources to me in uh, my ministry at Union Presbyterian Seminary. Uh, Lib um, has um, recently rotated off the board of trustees, and uh, before she did, we put her to some I guess pretty strenuous work in making sure that uh, she, we had our five-year next five-year plan in terms of our strategic vision. She chaired that effort for us and helped us move in a wonderful direction. So I'm deeply thankful to her. And then um, Peter, whom I'm, I've uh, known since his time as a student at the seminary, one of our outstanding students in the many years, almost 30 years now of theological education, I consider him to be one of the um, brightest and um, most uh, promising 
blessing of our students that we've had, that I've had, and to come in contact in my time. Um, but he also has uh, is continuing now on the board of trustees, and he chaired or co-chaired um, our last capital campaign, which was incredibly successful for the work of the seminary. So I'm thankful to both of them for the gifts they bring to Union Presbyterian Seminary. I also want to bring you greetings from Union Presbyterian Seminary. As Peter told you, we have two campuses in Richmond and in Charlotte. And uh, I hope that um, if you find yourselves in Richmond, where I am most of the time, or in Charlotte, um, that you might find your way to our campus. I'd love for you to see it. Um, I would certainly love um, if you find your way to Richmond and if I'm in, on campus at the time to show you around. As I said to the last... Um, last worship service. Um, it's often the case I'll be in my office working and my assistant will knock on the door and she'll say, well, there's some people here from such and such a church. And they said that you said that when they were in town, <laughs> that they should stop by. And I always am delighted when that happens. And it does happen. Um, and I'm delighted when it does. This, <coughs> excuse me, this morning, we are going to follow the lectionary, and the gospel text from the lectionary for this Reformation Sunday is a parable that all of us know very well, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let us listen for God's word to us. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of the Lord. I remember this time when I was preaching in the bathroom of my parents' home. My notes were perched on the edge of the sink. I couldn't gesture too much. Every time I got wound up with what I was saying, my one hand would slam up against the door to my right. My other hand would get caught up in the shower curtain to my left. It's a small bathroom. Sometimes I got distracted when I saw myself in the mirror. My reflection seemed to be confused. Like my face didn't really believe my mouth. Have you ever had a situation like that where your brain can't believe what your mouth is saying? Well, you don't want that to happen when you're preaching. That made me nervous. And I can't preach when I'm nervous, so I turned away. Stop preaching to the face in the mirror and preach to the toilet bowl and the bathtub instead. <laughs> they weren't any more receptive. The toilet bowl just sat there. The bathroom just, the bathtub just lay there. I was just out of seminary, 24 years old, didn't have a job, hardly had a clue. I was living with my parents because I could not afford to live by myself. While most of my friends were settling into their first ministries, I graduated without even the hint of a call. I was losing weight, losing confidence, but not losing a sense that I was speaking with the thunder and the force of God's kingdom pulsating in every word. 
I was idealistic. I believe words made a difference, especially words proclaimed from a pulpit. And I have been convinced by the apocalyptic message that we should preach as though God's grace-filled future was on a collision course with our sinful present. In fact, like a giant grace meteor striking the earth, the collision had already occurred with the inbreaking life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. It was time we stopped bracing against the impact, trying to survive just the way we are, and embrace the impact and let it transfigure us into who we could and should be. Radical grace was what I was preaching. The kind of radical grace the reformers preached. You couldn't earn it. God was giving it away. But you could reject it, and unfortunately, many people did. Reject God's grace I was preaching madness in that bathroom, the madness of a new world where the debts against God, every debt you had ever made against God was remitted, every sin forgiven, but not because you could earn God's pardon or buy God's forgiveness. But in the early medieval Catholic church, people tried to buy God's forgiveness Believers purchase these things called indulgences to reduce the amount of eternal heavenly punishment they were justifiably owed for their sins. And if you had a particularly rowdy, sinful loved one, you could even go to the spiritual Sam's Club or the churchly Costco of the time and stock up on shopping carts full of indulgences for him so he could buy his way into heaven. Imagine that. God's love and mercy on sale. The early reformers knew none of us was good enough and no amount of money was sufficient enough for us to earn or buy what God was giving away for free. We don't have to pay anything. All we have to do is come and receive everything and let that everything transform us into a new people. What a message, this Reformation message. Good news. God's grace. Grace is like when you eat a whole half gallon of ice cream because it was in the freezer and you didn't have anything else to do, and the next morning you get on the bathroom scale with fear and trepidation, and the scale says you lost 10 pounds. (laughs) Grace is like when you had a great time at the movies with your friends and at school the next day, some of your other friends remind you about a physics exam that you had completely forgotten about. And when the teacher puts that exam into your shaking, sweaty hands, you realize that you know how to solve every problem on it. Grace is like when you forgot your wedding anniversary and your spouse comes in with a beautiful, gorgeous card, and you're all sweaty and nervous, and your heart is racing, and you're about to confess that you forgot, and therefore you got nothing, and the doorbell rings, and a smiling delivery person is standing there with this big, beautiful bouquet of roses. (laughs) Grace is like when you hurt someone even though you didn't mean to, or when you hurt someone because, yes, you meant to, And after realizing with remorse just how wrong you have been and how unlikable you are, you hear an assurance of pardon that in Christ Jesus you are forgiven. Grace, God's grace is like that. What a message. What a reformation message. 
All we have to do as contemporary reform people of faith is fire up people with the vision of the incoming, erupting, explosive, radical reign of this gracious God. Stop them from sitting on their chairs, lying in their beds, idling on their pews, and get them to stand up and to go out and proclaim this message. Live this message. Proclaim grace to others. Show grace to others. Be grace for others. God is grace to us. We respond by being grace to others. People should not have to earn grace from us. People should not have to buy grace from us. God gave grace to us. Having received, we give grace to others. We become grace for others. And all of that was just the introduction of my bathroom sermon. Oh, I was bringing it. I was preaching so passionately, I'm surprised my hair wasn't on fire. My mom, who happened to be walking by the bathroom door, heard me. She stopped to listen to me. And at one point, when I hit a high note, she shouted out an affirmation, well, amen. (laughs) Did I say I was 24 years old and just starting out? Actually, had not even yet started out. And that may have been my best sermon moment ever. When I heard my mom, who never shouted in church, shout outside the door, wow. No gathering of the faithful, no pulpit, no microphone, a bathroom, my sanctuary, a toilet bowl, and a bathtub, my congregation, preaching the gospel of God's radical grace, call and response from an eavesdropper on the other side of the bathroom door. I was nervous, though, about preaching that sermon anywhere other than the bathroom. Outside the bathroom, it's hard to tell Christians to stop trying to earn God's favor, trying to be better than other Christians who are vainly trying to be better than them. Why do believers want to show that they have received more of God's love and God's grace than other believers? This is a shocking parable. Because Jesus is not just challenging the Pharisees in a very important way. He is challenging his own followers for being like the Pharisees, for trying to show that they deserve more of God's grace than other believers. You don't think that is what Jesus is doing? Listen to what Luke says. Luke says that Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves and regarded others with contempt. In other words, Jesus also told this parable to some who thought they deserved God's grace, who thought they had earned God's favor and were thus better than other believers. In other words, he also told this parable to the Pharisees. He primarily told this parable to his disciples. Really? I can almost see his disciples' faces. Are you talking to us? Are we the Pharisee? Let me tell you who we are not. We are not the tax collector. At least, I hope no one in the sanctuary is the tax collector or is even remotely like the tax collector. Fred Craddock explains the tax collector well. Working for a foreign government, collecting taxes from his own people, a participant in a cruel and corrupt system, politically a traitor, religiously unclean, a tax collector was a reprehensible character. Craddock goes on to say that while the tax collector prays in a nice way, his life is offensive. None of us in this sanctuary this morning ever want someone to say about us, well, he can pray up a storm, God bless him, but he's the meanest, most offensive person you will ever want to meet. Who cares how pretty your prayers are if your life stinks this strongly? Imagine being a people who have been occupied by a foreign oppressive regime. 
a regime that tortures and rapes and murders your people and claims your property and your resources with impunity, and there is absolutely nothing you can do about it. Imagine your neighbor joining forces with that regime to keep it in power. Now imagine that regime rewarding your neighbor by giving him a job. His job is to make sure he collects taxes that you cannot afford to pay so that the regime can then use those taxes to keep financing their imperial oppression of your people. Your neighbor takes to this job with delight and prospers from it. He tells you that he must collect $1,000 from your family for taxes. But the regime has told you that your family only owes $300, so he makes you pay the 1000 He gives the regime 300 and he keeps for himself 700 So while you get poorer and poorer, he gets richer and richer. You watch your children and your friends die from poverty. You watch him living a wealthy, wealthy lifestyle. You tell me you're going to care when he steps up at the temple and asks God to forgive him of his sins? You're telling me you're not going to be angry if God actually listens to him? I am telling you that I am not the tax collector. I have never been the tax collector. I don't want to know the tax collector. And the truth is, I don't want to sit beside the tax collector in church. And now, having heard this stupefying parable, I'm a little bit worried that I'm going to have to stand beside the tax collector in heaven. Because according to this stunning parable, Jesus claims that the tax collector goes home justified by God, but not the Pharisee. The Pharisee may have been an arrogant man, but the Pharisee was not a bad man. In fact, the Pharisees were a lot like Jesus historically. Pharisee was the name of a religious party of the people of Israel in the first century during Jesus' lifetime. Much like we have political parties, Democrat and Republican today, Jesus' people had religious parties. We know that being a Democrat defines a person in some important ways that are different from someone who identifies herself as a Republican. Well, two very important religious parties in the first century were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These two parties differed on the way they interpreted the law. For the Sadducees, the only law that the people should observe was the written law, the written law of the Torah that had come down written from Moses to and for the people. Thus, laws written for circumstances thousands of years earlier that had to be obeyed in their time, even though the circumstances had radically changed. It's like us having to obey traffic laws created for horses and buggies, even though we now drive cars. So the Pharisees created an ongoing oral law that was an interpretation of this written law. In some cases, the oral law interpreted the written law, so the written law was more flexible so that the old law could be applied to new situations. In this way, the Pharisees are like judges who interpret the ancient law for modern times. They try to make the old law applicable in ways that are helpful for contemporary living. They do this because they're trying to help their people by making the laws more understandable and thereby making it easier for people to obey the laws. Their oral interpretation of the law should make people like them better. And they also tried their best, these Pharisees, not to be hypocritical. Most like this one praying at the temple did their very best to uphold the law, even to do more than the law required. They didn't just want the people to like them, they wanted God to like them. They didn't just ask the people to be obedient to God's laws, they interpreted God's ancient laws so God's present people could understand and follow the intent of the law because the Pharisees thought the letter of the law was just outmoded. They didn't just ask the people to be obedient to God's laws. They took a position themselves of leadership in 
in righteousness, by being examples of obedience to God's laws, an example that the people would hopefully follow. It's like asking your child to be good in school and make a B average, and the child comes home proudly and proclaims, Mom and Dad, I made all A's. Where obeying the law was concerned, the Pharisees were straight-A students. Now, what's wrong with that? I suspect what interests Jesus is how the Pharisee and the tax collector present themselves before God. In his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, John Carroll makes some very helpful observations. He notes that the two men are a study in contrast. The Pharisee stands by himself, his position conveying his attitude toward other people expressed in his prayer. His physical demeanor suggests that he's not with other people because he's much better than other people. The tax collector knows he's not better than anybody. The tax collector stands at a distance, but apparently because he knows he doesn't belong too close to God's temple. He turns his face down, away from heaven, in humility, or as Carol says, in humiliation. His prayer is brief, just six words, while the Pharisee's prayer just goes on and on and on. The tax collector's prayer is about what he hopes God will do for him despite what he has done to God's people. The Pharisee's prayer is filled with I pronouns. In other words, it's all about what I have done and therefore what God owes me. Most important, the tax collector beats his chest as a sign of repentance for everything that he has done wrong. Since the Pharisee has done nothing wrong, in fact, he has done everything more than right, he doesn't even think about beating his chest. Instead, he pats himself on the back. So why does Jesus tell this parable to his disciples, to his followers, to us? I can see why he also tells it to the Pharisees, the ones who trust in themselves that they are righteous and hold others in contempt. But why does he tell it to us? Is he trying to suggest that we trust too much in ourselves that we are righteous? Is he trying to say that we too often hold others in contempt? Is he trying to say that we don't show to others the grace that God has shown us? Is he trying to say that therefore we should be careful because while someone as offensive as a tax collector goes home with God's justification, we may not, is this parable talking to us? Well, it's talking to someone like us, someone like most of us. Fred Craddock goes on to say, no one can doubt the Pharisee's disciplined adherence to the moral and ethical code of his faith. He is the faithful, dependable, tithing type of believer who pays the salaries of ministers so they can preach on the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. For this parable to continue to speak with power, the preacher will need to find in our culture analogous characters. I say that the preacher has found us. After all, isn't the Pharisee doing what we praying, worshiping people often do? When someone asks you to pray in public, don't you try to pray the best, most righteous prayer you can pray before God and God's people? Don't you? I certainly do. First of all, I have never been all that comfortable with public praying. I have not even been all that comfortable with semi-public praying. And I know that's a difficult confession for a minister to be making. My family would ask me all the time to pray every single time there was a family gathering, like I was a family pastor. One time, feeling all put out, I poured some cold water on the family festivities by answering that I didn't go to seminary and get a Ph.D. in the New Testament just because I could therefore pray before every family meal. You Christians, pray for your own selves. Say your own prayers. What, did you flunk out of Sunday school? Well, maybe I wasn't being altogether righteous right then. 
But it's not just that I don't want to be a prayer crutch for people doing what they should be doing for themselves. I'll admit that like the Pharisee, if I'm going to be praying out there where other people can see and hear me, I want my prayer to be a good prayer, a righteous prayer. I remember being asked to pray for the opening of the State General Assembly in New Jersey. The governor was there. The president of the state senate was there. The speaker of the house, all the legislators, the press, the cameras, all the importance. It was a cool thing. You don't just get up and pray in that circumstance. You write something out. You write it out hard, and you get other professional praying people to look at it, investigate it, (laughs) analyze it kind of like what the Pharisee probably did, because you want a prayer that everybody will be impressed by. You're supposed to be just talking to God about matters that matter to you, about what you think matters to people of the state. And perhaps like the prophet Nathan before King David, you're supposed to be free enough to tell the governor and the legislatures that they aren't doing enough or that maybe they're doing stuff they ought to stop doing. But not if you want the governor and the legislators and the news people to like you, to be impressed by you. So like the Pharisee, you pray the best, most likable prayer you can pray, and you want everyone, including God, to think it is a good prayer, a good prayer by a good and righteous person. That's how we want it to come off. Just like the Pharisee, the early reformers knew that that is exactly how we get into trouble. But I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm just trying to be righteous. I don't consider anybody else in contempt. But then the very act of calling myself righteous by definition makes me hold others in contempt. Jesus is intentionally speaking to all of us who consider ourselves righteous. Righteousness is a comparative term. It compares with unrighteousness. How do you determine that someone is good unless you compare him to someone who is not? Otherwise, there is no need of a label. Like in Eden, before the fall, Adam is not good. Eve is not good. Adam just is. Eve just is. He is Adam. She is Eve. That is what he is. That is what she is. That is all he and she need to be. But Adam and Eve want more. They want to be something. They want to know something. So they eat out of the tree of knowledge, and then they know they are bad because they know what good is, and good is obedient, and they have been disobedient. And now they know the difference. A little child, two months old, screaming in the crib at 2 a.m. is not being bad. Crying in that context is neither good nor bad. It just is. Yelling and screaming for food in the middle of the night in that context is not good or bad. It just is. But when the child is 12 years old and screaming for attention or food in the middle of the night, we groggily tell the child, this is bad behavior. This is not good. This has got to change. Because the child knows now good and bad, and we must hope choose good. Choose to be righteous. The child knows that she is righteous if she goes to sleep at night and does not demand attention from mom and dad at 2 a.m. She comes to wonder if she should hold her baby brother in contempt when he wakes them up at 2 a.m. She'll certainly hold him in contempt if they are so groggy in the morning that they get up so late that they can't fix her breakfast before sending her off to school. If she has become righteous and her baby brother is still waking their parents up in the middle of the light with disastrous consequences, yes, she's going to hold him in contempt. Because she's comparing. The Pharisee isn't the only one who compares. We all compare. And when we're righteous and compare, we hold everybody who isn't doing the righteous stuff we think we are doing and the righteous way we think we are doing it in contempt. I wonder sometimes if this is why when the young ruler came to Jesus and said, good teacher, Jesus corrected him and said, no one is good but God. Jesus doesn't claim the righteous label, even though he was due the term righteous more than anybody. 
But he won't use that language for himself because it is comparative language. Compared to people, he might have been righteous, and then he could hold people in contempt. But he compares himself to God, and when he does, he doesn't come out good because only God is good, only God is righteous, so only God gets to judge and hold in contempt. So I rethought this text. Jesus probably was talking to me. Because I do want to be righteous. The irony is this, the very desire to be righteous makes me hold others in contempt. But holding others in contempt is not a righteous way of living, which means the more I try to be and act righteous, the less righteous I am. This is one of the key radical messages of the Reformation. No one, by what they do or say, can make themselves righteous before God. That's why in the end it's better if all of us think the way Jesus thinks. No one is righteous Only God is righteous. That means Jesus apparently wants us to think of ourselves the way the tax collector thinks of himself, as unworthy, as repentant, as not caring how we sound or look to others, caring only how we look and sound to God. In the end, the story is not about how good I am, how good you are, how much better we are than some others are. It is certainly not about how the unrighteous tax collector is in the end more righteous than the righteous Pharisee. This story is about being careful, very careful, to do good for the right reasons, not in a way to compare ourselves to others or to demand recognition from God, but as a response to the fact that God reaches out to us even though we don't deserve it. No matter how much good we have done, are doing, or will do, we don't deserve the love God has given, is giving, and will give. And yet, God gives God's love to us anyway. But the moment we think we deserve God's love or have earned God's love, we are losing our way, like the Pharisee. God doesn't justify righteous Pharisees because righteous Pharisees think that they are justified because they are righteous Pharisees. God justifies unrighteous, repentant tax collectors. Since I've spent my entire life trying to be as far away from being a tax collector as I can be, trying to be as righteous as I can be, for me, this dizzying parable is as shocking as God's grace is inexplicable. It is a parable that perhaps reaches a confounding climax when in the very next chapter, Jesus goes into a house and proclaims for someone what everybody desperately wants to hear Jesus proclaim for them. Today, salvation has come to this house. Jesus did not say that salvation came to all the houses of all the people who were living so-called righteous lives before God and others. He said salvation came to this house, the house of Zacchaeus, the house of a chief tax collector. That is how stupefyingly, frustratingly amazing God's grace is. All we have to do is receive that grace. All we are called to do is to go out, proclaim, and live that grace.